0: So here at Sojourn, uh, for some months, we have been walking through the biblical book of Acts, as you probably know if you've been around. and, And it recounts, of course, the very early years of the Christian church. And our text for this morning Uh, is three chapters, three pretty long chapters, chapters 24 to 26, which are coming really near the end of the book. We are almost done hearing these great stories. And the stories that we're going to look at today are really too long to be printed in the bulletin. That's why they're not there. Too long to be put on slides. Uh, We're not going to read the whole thing. Instead, what I'd like to invite you to do is if you have a Bible, either physically or digitally, Um, to get a hold of that. Maybe you can share with somebody next to you. Maybe this will be the beginning of a great new romance. Maybe you'll meet somebody in this service you're sharing a Bible with, whatever it is, or the rekindling of romance as well. Whatever it is, if you can somehow get a Bible in front of you, or you can just listen if you're not able to. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to just kind of walk through these stories, kind of give a highlights reel, make sense of some things for them. And then I just want to ask one simple question after we do that. What are we supposed to do with this? Why are these stories here? So now last week, so again, we'll be in Acts chapter 24. Last week, Pastor Kevin talked about what happened actually in Acts chapters 21 to 23. Maybe you can glance there for a second. And and that part of the story is important because it leads right up and sets up our story for today. So what happens? Well, in Acts 21 through 23, we meet our main character, the Apostle Paul. And Paul is a revolutionary He is a bold one. He is fearless. He's a disciple maker. He constantly lays down his life for the sake of helping people know Jesus. And he's been traveling all over for years, living all over the Mediterranean world, ministering the gospel. But in these chapters, chapters 21 and following, he has a homecoming. He's returning to his beloved Jerusalem. Jerusalem from any Jewish person's perspective, the center of the universe, the place where King David ruled for a thousand years, or a thousand years earlier, the place where the great temple was built, where all the smells and sights and sounds are familiar. It's where, for Christians, of course, very importantly as well, including for Paul at this point, that Jesus himself was tried, crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. This would be like If you were away living overseas for five years or on a military tour of duty or away for college and you're coming back home to mama's cooking in that familiar chair, this is what Paul's experience was. He was thrilled. So he gets back to Jerusalem. He connects with the believers. He gives money to the help the poor in Jerusalem that he's been collecting from all over the Mediterranean. And what happens? He gets ambushed. While he's in the temple worshiping God, His, his opponents, his enemies, the Jewish leadership, grab him. They drag him out. They start a riot. They start beating him with their fists and and with clubs. They start cursing him so much so that the Romans have to, the Roman soldiers have to come in and break it up and grab Paul and put him inside the barracks. And we see at the end of chapter twenty one and all the way through chapter twenty three, then that Paul has to undergo several very stressful trials where people stand up and falsely accuse him and malign him and and accuse him of wrongdoing. And his enemies, the Jewish leadership, they are so mad about the growth of Christianity and they hate Paul so much that they do everything they can to try to get him killed, either by themselves or the Roman authorities. Sounds a lot like Jesus just a few years before. Now, unfortunately for Paul's enemies, they really can't prove that he's done anything wrong. And so Paul is actually able to stand up and defend himself in the sense of just explain that he's not been causing trouble and that this is a a debate over the resurrection, whether Jesus has really risen from the dead. And so we see at the end of chapter 23 that the Roman authorities um, recognize that something else is going on, that the Jewish people have made a plot. Some of the Jewish leaders have made a plot to kill Paul and they've made a vow even that they won't eat until they kill him. So the Roman authorities hear, out, hear about this and they decide they need to get Paul out of this hotbed of Jerusalem. So they take him to a different city, the coastal city of Caesarea, and they put him in prison. And that's where our story today in Acts chapter 24 begins. Paul's in chains. He's in a Roman prison. He's in the city of Caesarea under a Roman governor named Felix sitting there, waiting to see what would happen. Thankful to be alive, certainly, but this is not what he planned when he went back for this homecoming to Jerusalem. Just a few days earlier, he entered the city with joy and connected with all these believers, and all of a sudden, he finds himself in a different city in prison. And we see at the beginning of chapter 24 that even that is not enough for Paul's opponents. They're not content that he's just been taken away. They go, to, they go to Caesarea, they bring a lawyer, they bring in the pros, they bring a, a lawyer and a spokesman. And we see in the beginning of chapter 24 that they launch another attack against him and they say in the first nine verses of chapter 24, they say lots of unkind, unfair things about him, make accusations against him. And then we see in chapter 24, starting in verse 10, that Paul stands up and very humbly, but clearly and forcefully, he refutes the charges and shows that this he's done nothing wrong. And so then in the last part of chapter 24, you can see it if you have a Bible there and starting verse 22, we see that this whole mess puts the Roman governor Felix into a very difficult spot. There's no clear case, legal case against Paul. It's a theological matter. But here's where things get messy. And here's where understanding something a little bit about the historical background can explain this story. If there's one thing, there's one job in the Roman Empire that you don't want, it's to be the governor over Palestine. That's the one job you don't want. Why? Because to be the appointed ruler in this Roman Empire in the first century over the Jewish people was a very difficult job because the Jewish people then and now are deeply religious, deeply committed, traditional people with strong convictions and customs. And they're tenacious, they're survivors, even under the harshest conditions. I mean, you can see this throughout church history, and throughout, sorry, throughout human history including in something like the Fiddler on the Roof or something, the Jewish people are a strong, beautiful people who are firmly committed. So, so much that they're committed to convictions that they often fight within themselves about who is the right version. And this was the case in the, in the first century as well. Well, the Roman governor Felix, just like a guy you have heard of, Pontius Pilate, before him some years earlier, really got the short end of the stick this was his position to be the governor over Palestine. And it stunk because in fact, Felix had all kinds of troubles with the various Jewish people who just were never willing to submit to Roman culture and just accommodate. And so he took a hardline stance on them, Felix did. And the result was it was getting worse and worse. And Felix, shortly after, in part of our story, he's actually gonna lose his job and get pulled back to Rome because of all the complaints about uh, how he wasn't handling things well. So, you see, Felix is in a real dilemma. There's no legal case against Paul, but the last thing he can handle, the last thing he wants to do is upset the Jerusalem leaders anymore. So, what does he do? Well, you can see it in verse 22 of chapter 24. He punts. He just says, I'm just going to leave Paul in prison and wait till the tribune comes to solve the case. We see in those verses in 22 and following that he's got a little interest in what Paul's saying and his wife does as well. But really, he's really hoping that he'll get some bribes out of Paul and his wealthy friends. And so he leaves him there. And look at that verse there. If you ever, you can just listen to it. Verse chapter 24, verse 27. When two years had elapsed. Two years, Paul sits there. Felix finally gets called back to Rome. He loses his post. A new governor is put in place named Festus. So here, now here we are two years later. In one, just a few words in our, in our Bible, two years have passed. Paul's been sitting in prison. His friends can come and provide for him. This is not like our prison systems where there's a weight room and medical care and job training and a cafeteria. This is a kind of prison where once you're in there, unless people come and help you, you just die. And so we see that God's people are coming and they're ministering and they're bringing scrolls to him and food and, and talking with him. But now the new governor's here. And so Paul's opponents are still not done. They hate him so much that they see their opportunity to try to get the case going again against Paul. So Festus arrives, he goes to Jerusalem to try to kind of meet these, the leaders there that he's gonna have to govern over. And they see this opportunity to fight against Paul Once again. Why? Well, it's because we know that even in prison, even though Luke doesn't tell us about it here, we know it from his letters, that even when he's in prison, Paul is on mission he's writing letters, he's ministering to people. Every single guard that he's he's chained up with or serves him, he's sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And the result is that the Jewish leaders that are opposed to him are getting madder and madder because even in prison, Paul is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the new governor of Festus shows up. He also wants to ingratiate himself to try to do better than his predecessor, Felix, did. So he agrees to let the Jewish leaders come to Caesarea and try him again. And so then we see in chapter 25 that they make accusations against Paul. He defends himself. And then if you look at at the end of chapter 25, you'll see that this puts Festus in the exact same dilemma that Felix was in. There's no charges against Paul that actually can stick, yet he doesn't want to make the Jewish leadership upset with them. So what does he have to do? So he suggests, well, why don't we just send Paul back to Jerusalem and you guys can deal with it? Well, Paul knows that that's going to end in his death, and he knows that God has called him to something more. So let your eyes rest on verse 10 of chapter 25, and here's what happens. Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer, I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. It's just like if you're a US citizen, and you're in another country, you have certain rights. And if you could get to the embassy, which would be American soil, even in another country, you can claim your American citizenship and rights. Well, Paul was not only a Jewish man, he was also a Roman citizen. And so he realizes God's called me to Rome. If I go back to Jerusalem, that's not where God's called me. I'm going to get killed. So I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so you see then Festus's response in verse 12. When he had conferred with his council, he said, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, time keeps moving on in our story in chapter 25. There's some delay between this moment and when Paul's going to be sent to Rome, and he is going to be sent to Rome in in what we'll see next week, the next chapters. But in the midst of that, one more little aspect of our story develops. And that is that Festus receives an official state visit from King Herod Agrippa II and his sister, Princess Bernice. Bernice. Who is this? Well, if you recognize that name, King Herod Agrippa II, you hear the Herod part. This is actually the grandson of the Herod that you meet back in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, who Herod the Great, who built the temple and killed all the young boys in Jesus' day. It's the son of the next Herod, Herod Agrippa I, who was the one who we met in Acts chapter 12, who killed James, the brother of John, one of the disciples. And now this is the third in the line of these corrupt people who all took upon themselves king of the Jews. They were Jewish people who were in cahoots with the Romans and took upon this title king of the Jews. So he arrives and you know they're hanging out and Shop talk comes up at some point between the governor Festus and and Princess Agrippa or Prince Agrippa or King Agrippa, and they end up end up talking about this issue of Paul. And Festus has this opportunity; he thinks this might help me to get a Jewish king to help me figure out what in the world I'm supposed to do with Paul because I've got to send him off to Rome with these charges against him. So we read, if you look in the end of chapter 25, there, what happens is there comes a day where there's this big pomp and circumstance. So Um, The King Agrippa is there, Governor Festus, Princess Bernice, music, honor, banners, Roman centurions everywhere. They set up this big courtroom, and then they bring up Paul, a guy who's been in prison for a couple of years, who by traditional accounts was short and bald had big, bushy eyebrows, some of the church fathers say, a hooked nose. He's wearing peasant clothes. He's probably emaci- emaciated from being in prison. And he's brought before all this pomp and circumstance, and they permit him to speak. And this is what you find in chapter 26. We won't read the whole thing, but in 26, he begins in verse 2 he says, I consider myself fortunate that's before you, King Agrippa that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And what happens in the following verses is that rather than defending himself, Paul shares the most powerful thing you can share. He just shares his testimony. He shares about who he was before, what happened when he met Jesus, and then how it transformed his life. Imagine what a stressful situation this must have been for Paul. This is like National Spelling Bee, singing the National Anthem, um, getting married, and your first job interview all in one moment. It kind of wrapped up. You know, here he is in front of all these famous wealthy people. And the big thing is if he messes up, he's going to get killed probably. Very stressful. This is probably the kind of situation where when you read in some of Paul's letters, he talks about pray for boldness and clarity that he would know what to say. And so Paul shares his testimony very succinctly and powerfully and it's it's so unexpected that this short little bald crippled over person is speaking with such power and authority that if you look in chapter 26 verse 24 finally the governor interrupts him and says Paul you verse 24 you are out of your mind your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul responds very graciously, says that's not the case. And then he turns to Agrippa, who knows what he's talking about. At least he knows the Jewish customs. And he says, basically, I, I, I know that you understand what I'm talking about. In verse 27, you can look at it there. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And so Agrippa's in this totally awkward situation that Paul's appealing to him to confirm what he's saying. And so he does what many of us would do in this situation. He kind of throws a joke off. um, Oh, you know, are you going to persuade me to be, be a Christian? I'm sure all his cohort gave the appropriate little, you know, chuckles and snickers and all this. But here's this amazing situation that this nobody is speaking boldly and clearly just like Jesus had promised would happen, actually, back in Luke 21, 12. Do you remember that? He says, Jesus says, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. So our story ends then at the end of chapter 26 in this very, interesting and unexpected situation such that the the governor and the king pull aside into a private conversation and basically say, we don't know what to do. There are no charges against him. They're dumbfounded by this whole situation. And if you look at the very end of chapter 26, Agrippa says, verse 32, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It's an interesting story. But the question is, what in the world are we supposed to do with this? Believe me, I've been asking myself that all week as I've thought about it. It's a sincere question. Well, here at Sojourn, along with Christians for 2,000 years, we put a lot of emphasis on getting together each Sunday morning and just opening the Bible. We do a lot of other things, counseling, mercy ministry, community groups, youth groups, singing, taking the Lord's Supper. But we always put a priority on opening the scriptures, why? Because it's from the conviction within scripture itself that all of scripture is beneficial and fruitful and useful for transforming us, for training us to be more like God. So because of that, we spend time preaching through the Bible, like books like Acts. But if we're completely honest, I think sometimes when we read these stories, it's difficult to figure out how in the world it relates to my real life today, parenting and finances and and jobs and marriage and all these things, struggles, hopes, and fears. I get that. I feel the same way. So let me suggest to you that when we read these historical stories, there's a lot of ways that they can speak to us. They, They can certainly just give us information about what happened, and that can be helpful. They can give us models of people to imitate their character. That's certainly true. They can inspire us about Seeing the beauty of virtuous people and of God himself, they can explain how something came to be and they can give us encouragement about God's faithfulness. But today, what I want to do is just ask two simple questions about these stories. First, what do these stories teach us about God? And secondly, what do they teach us about the gospel? What do these stories teach us about God and what do they teach us about the gospel? The first question, what do they teach us about God? One of the most interesting things that struck me in reading these stories is that God actually never appears in them. In fact, unlike the rest of the book of Acts, where the Spirit is clearly at work and God is speaking, God is referenced, of course, and Jesus is re, what Jesus says is retold in the form of Paul's testimony. But Luke says nothing about what's going on in this whole time period in terms of the Spirit's work. And I think there's a profound way in which that actually mirrors the confusing and mysterious time this must have been for the Apostle Paul. Even though, you see, you and I could sit down and read chapters 24 to 26, that would maybe take us 15 minutes to read. It's so striking that these short chapters cover two to two and a half years of Paul's life two to two and a half years where he is sitting in prison, stuck in place, in prison. And I guarantee you that Paul as a real human, a man of great faith and hope. He must have had many moments, even days or weeks where he was confused, discouraged, frustrated by this whole situation. Because you see, while we understand, while Paul certainly knew that God is sovereign, he is in control, he can do whatever he wants, he perfectly is working out his plans in the world, from our very limited perspective as creatures, God's sovereignty is mysterious, and honestly, sometimes it stinks. Let me say that again. God is certainly orchestrating his plans in the world, and Paul knew that. But from our limited perspective, it's mysterious and sometimes really stinks. This whole two-year mess with its trials, its stresses, its frustrations, all happened because Paul was obeying God. He took money to help the poor in Jerusalem. And from there, he was—he had a call and a vision, direct words from Jesus, go to Rome to be my witness there. And so he's on the way. And now here he sits two and a half years later, languishing in a prison, neither in Jerusalem or in Rome. All along, Paul wants to get to Rome. It's explicitly again what Jesus told him he would do. But notice this important observation. And he will get to Rome in the next chapters, but it's not in the way or the timing or the form that he envisioned or planned. But it was in God's. Now, hear me clearly. None of us can ever claim to read the tea leaves of providence and know exactly what God's doing in our lives or somebody else's life, especially don't assume we know what somebody else is going on in somebody else's life. As one of my mentors always used to say, God is doing a thousand good things in every situation. Only God can see the whole map of our lives with all its twists and turns. We can never claim to do that. But it does seem to me that just like he did for Paul, I think God often brings us into holding patterns, into frustration, frustrating situations, even setbacks, precisely because he wants to deepen his transforming work in our lives. Let me say that again. God often brings us into holding patterns, frustrating situations, because he wants to deepen his transforming work in our lives. Think about Paul with me. He was an amazingly gifted and effective and energetic man, traveling and working all over, preaching, teaching, ministering to people, discipling people, writing letters. I cannot help but wonder if God was intentionally slowing the amazing apostle Paul down so that he could get connected with the Lord and stay connected with the Lord and his own soul. If you want to think of it from an Enneagram perspective, the Apostle Paul is definitely a one. And before he was converted, he was an unresourceful one. I think a strong moral crusader in this sense. And for a guy like that, who's on mission to then all of a sudden have everything taken away and be stuck in a prison for two and a half years, that's hard. Imagine that whatever you're good at, Whatever your passion is, whether it's a hobby or your job, something that you really feel alive doing, something you even feel clearly called to do, and you maybe have had success doing it, and and you have plans for taking it to the next level, and you're dreaming, and, and God is in it, and you're working towards it, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day, right in the midst of everything going great, it's all taken away. That's hard. In fact, I think we have reason to believe from Paul's own testimony, his own letters, that him being forced to slow down so that he could be connected with God and himself and others is exactly what was going on here. I think, for example, of what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is talking about all his great afflictions he encountered. He talks about having a sentence of death hanging over him. And then he says this. This sentence of death was on us, he says, Was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Paul also talks about God comforting him in the afflictions so that He can comfort others. Later on in the same book, he talks, and you may have heard of this, of Paul having a thorn in the flesh, some affliction. We don't know exactly what it was, but some affliction that he asked God to remove, but he came to realize that this affliction was for his good. And by Paul's own words, he says, so that he might not become conceited. Friends, if there's any Christian in the history of Christians who has the right to be just a little conceited, I think we could give that to the Apostle Paul. He laid down his life. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean. He was the lead apostle. He wrote half the New Testament, right? Can we give him a little opportunity to have a little self-pride and a little pride in his accomplishments? Paul would say no, and God would say no. And Paul embraced this intentional thorn in the flesh, whatever it is that slowed him down and frustrated him and made him not as maybe efficient as he would want. And he embraced it as a gift So that he might not become conceited. Now, while those cases that Paul's talking about are not specifically about accessory imprisonment, I think Paul clearly knew and applied to these years as well that God used trials and difficulties to recenter him. And he does so for you and me too, recentering us, reorienting us, reconnecting us to our bodies and ourselves, and to keep us grounded and upward looking. But it stinks. This past weekend, I was uh, involved again, as I have been for many years, with a men's ministry and group called Men at the Cross, and I was away uh, for that this last weekend. And I, it was coming off an extremely busy couple of months of traveling and speaking and teaching and writing and and lots of doing lots of things all over the place. And I was committed to this weekend, you know, many months before. I was starting to dread it, honestly, because it's a very exhausting weekend. It's not where we're not just sitting around on a porch or something, you know, for it's not a retreat in that sense. It's a very intentional weekend where you have to really start paying attention to what's going on inside. The things that were required of me and the way the weekend was structured, I had certain responsibilities. I had to slow down and I had to start paying attention to what's going on inside of me. And I had to be really present with the men I was with. And it was hard because it's a rare thing in my life, this group I'm involved with, where I can't just sort of power through on my own wits and strength. A lot of my life, I'm just winging it all the time, right? Just running and winging it. But this was a weekend where I couldn't just, couldn't get away with that. And so it was really hard. And the first half of it, I felt really disconnected, really struggled to be present, really almost regretted that I had gone. But then something happened. I had a, a vision in my mind of my body like running, like a stick figure running really fast, but my soul a couple of steps behind. And sometime on Saturday that weekend, I felt like my soul, because I was forced to slow way down, my soul finally caught up with my body. And I started to pay attention to some things that were going on inside of me. It was precisely that being forced to slow down and not just get away with running all the time that was the source of life to me. Have you experienced what I'm talking about? Maybe through a job loss, illness, infertility, relationship disaster, depression. I don't know. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. You thought it was clear what your Rome was. You thought it was clear where you were going and what you were called to and what the future looked like. And, and it was good and God was in it. And then all of a sudden it just doesn't work out. I don't know what all is God is doing and I, I'm not gonna pontificate that I know exactly what he's doing, but I would invite you to embrace these frustrating situations at least as this, as a as a gift opportunity, if I can make up a word, a gift opportunity. It's not a very pretty word, but a gift opportunity to get connected with God and yourself and with others. This I think is what Paul's experience was. I think by any accounts, we would have wanted him not to be in prison, so he could have done way more from our opinion. But God knew what he was doing, and God had him in prison stuck for two and a half years so that he might form him more into his image. So that's what I think one of the things, at least, we can say, that god we learn about God and his beauty from these stories. But I said I wanted to ask a second question, and it's this. What do these stories teach us about the gospel. Well, you know, one of the one of the greatest things about the book of Acts that's really good is that when we read it, we'll see a lot of sermons and speeches. And a lot of times those sermons and speeches teach us a lot about the gospel. And I think one of them is, is here in Paul's testimony in chapter 26. If you still have a Bible opener, we'll put the words on the screen. Paul is sharing his testimony and he shares what Jesus actually said to him and that God was that Jesus was calling Paul to go to be a witness. And then if you look at chapter 26, verse 18, it says, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Friends, that's an amazing and beautiful description right there in one verse of what the gospel is. It's not the only one. There are a lot of different ways we can describe the gospel the Bible does, but that's a great one. And think with me about those words, that if you have faith in Christ, if you've been made alive again through him, he describes it as an opening of your eyes from being blind to having sight. Have you experienced that? He describes it as a turning from stumbling in darkness through our lives to seeing clearly and feeling the warmth of the sun on our skin, he describes it as a freedom, and, and if you're not a Christian, you may not realize, and if, even if you're a Christian, you may not have realized this before, he describes it that if you're not a Christian, you're actually in bondage to Satan. Yet there's a freedom, there's a deliverance, a rescue that happens when one becomes a child of God. He describes it as a receiving of forgiveness, and I want you to hear this, really forgiven. Everything that you and I have done, things large and small and everywhere in between, things that people know about you, things that nobody else knows about you, sins that you and I have committed in doing wrong, sins that we've committed by not doing what we should have done, we in the gospel are actually forgiven. Really. Actually forgiven no matter what you've done, it actually can be completely, truly forgiven in a way that you've probably never experienced forgiveness from anybody else. But in God, who does nothing half-heartedly, God who is wholehearted in all that he does, says, I forgive you. And I think the best description is the last one, that he's given us a place among those who are sanctified. I like that word place. That's a good that's a good word. It's very rich in its connotations, but I think we can be even more specific about what Paul's trying to communicate here. The idea of place, it's its not really easy to translate. He means something like a standing, an inheritance, a place at the table, a place in a family, a, 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 a promise, a sure guarantee of security for your future. That's what Paul's trying to communicate him, here. And that is a startling statement to describe of the gospel. That means no matter what your background or ethnicity or family of origin or socioeconomic status or intelligence or education or DNA, strain, purity. Anyone who turns and believes in Jesus is now declared to be an inheritor, a stakeholder, a son or daughter within the family of the people of God with all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto. Could there be any more encouraging thought than that as you think about the brokenness of your life? Don't you sometimes dream about being adopted by a super wealthy family? Wouldn't that be awesome? I was recently spent some time with a 25-year-old or so young woman who's part of a particularly wealthy family in America. If I told you the name of the large company they own, you would know it immediately. Of course, there's nothing inherently more important or special about her, but it was hard not to imagine with some envy, as she described very humbly, uh, this very wealthy, happy, generous family and what their lives are like. It was hard not to think, that would be nice if i didn't have to if i didn't have to worry about a cell phone bill or how i'm going to pay for college for my kids if i had millions and millions you know uh, but here's the deal friends even the wealthiest family's wealth could be gone tomorrow but paul is saying jesus is saying that if you are a christian the gospel can be described as you have now been grafted into and said welcome you're part of this family now a family with a security and a life that is certain. it's so one other thing I think that these stories teach us about the gospel, not only from those explicit words, but I think we also see one final thing about the beauty of the gospel here, that it's even more than those words. The gospel is the power by the Holy Spirit to be transformed, to go from being one person that you and I were before And not just sort of forgiven, but actually changed to be a different person. One of the amazing things about Acts is that we get to see Paul's entire lifespan up until he's in prison in Rome after this. But from being one kind of person to being an entirely different kind of person by the power of the Spirit. And this is what he's sharing in his testimony. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't try to act like everything was fine before. He just owns his brokenness, and he shows that the gospel transforms him. By the power of the Spirit, he went from being a harsh and zealous lawkeeper, a highly educated Pharisee, proud of his Jewish heritage and his purity of blood, Paul became the most gracious receiver of Gentiles, receiver of broken people, one who no longer relies on his education or puts stock in it. Instead, he puts all his hope in a foolish and scandalous message for which he gets beaten up the message of Jesus's cross. And in fact, he even says, I don't even care about my whole religious heritage and all my purity before. That's nothing compared to who I've become now by the power of the Spirit. It'd be like if Kim Jong un or the head of ISIS became a Christian all of a sudden, and rather than attacking and persecuting, they began to evangelize and build up the church and help the poor. That's what happened with Paul. He was that bad of a guy. You can read earlier in Acts and in his own testimony, and he was completely changed into a different person. And one of the places you see that is here in chapter 26 when he is falsely accused, and this is so challenging to me when he is falsely accused and and put in prison and attacked and maligned, he doesn't respond any of the ways that I would want to or the ways that I do. He wasn't contentious. He wasn't disrespectful. He wasn't slanderous. You can just see in all his speeches here, he doesn't blast these people, Jewish leaders or Romans. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't curse them. He doesn't have his own plans to undermine them. Instead, he just shows up and shares the testimony of who he was how he met Jesus, and how that transformed him. You see, the gospel message is not just a message of the forgiveness of sins. It is the good news that God is actually changing us from being one kind of people to another. I want to be more patient. I want to be more kind, more hopeful, more loving. I don't want to be harsh and self-promoting and arrogant and angry. Can I just fix those things in myself? No, I cannot but we see in Paul's life and billions of Christians over the last 2000 years including many in this room that the gospel is the hope of the holy spirit transforming us into new people i love what paul says in 26:22 to this day i've had the help that comes from god so i stand here testifying <laughs> it's that simple god has been at work in my life so i stand before you testifying and i do as well so friends As we conclude today, I just want to give you hope and courage. What do I want you to walk away with this week, thinking about in addition to basketball, which is coming up, wait till the prayer, then you can slip out. I want you to walk away from these stories from Paul's life with the reality that our God is a perfect and wise father who always does what is best for us. Do you believe that? Always. Does what is, His character is on the line with that. He always does what is best for us, even when that looks like and feels like being stuck. And it's because of God's work in the world through Jesus, and it's often through our stuckness, that he is at work to transform us and make us into new people, beautiful people. And that's good news. It was good news for Paul in two and a half years in prison, which was not his plan or desire. And it's good news for you and me today in Louisville. Now, each week we gather to remind ourselves of the message that enabled Paul to endure that. And we remind ourselves not just with words that we can just dismiss in our mind, but we remind ourselves with our tongues and our mouths and our stomachs. We're reminded by taking of these physical symbols that all of this is true. And our only hope is the fact that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is a symbol. This is my body. This breaking of bread is what's going to happen to me. And he took wine and he said, this red Beautiful wine represents my blood that I'm going to shed for you. And friends, if you're a Christian, we invite you to come forward today and with your body, be reminded by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good by this reminder. So I'm going to pray. The musicians are going to come forward. And then if you're a Christian, think for a moment, center your soul before God, and then come with joy and partake of this.